Let's pray together. Well, well Father, um, Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for this, this day. Um, what makes this day beautiful is so many things, Lord. Um, the fact that um, we have a church to go to, the fact that you've given us your precious word. Um, Deuteronomy says that your word is our life. And uh, Father, I pray that we would esteem it to be that. Thank you for the fellowship. Thank you for the beautiful day that you've made this beautiful creation. I know it's about to get cold, but it's still wonderful outside to see the marvelous handiwork of your creation and your wisdom and your power. And um, we pray, Lord, as we begin to study this new doctrine today, um, um, the doctrine of Christology, that you would give us a greater glimpse of Christ. And uh, Lord, we don't want to study theology just for theology's sake. Lord, all of our uh, our studies and all of our uh, theology and all of the systematic theology that we've been looking at here, Father, I pray that it would only be for one great reason, and that is to know you more and to know your son better, to love him more, and to be devoted and obedient to him in a greater fashion. Lord, bless our time. Lord, give us wisdom and insight in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to be uh, beginning a new uh, section in our systematic theology. Uh, we are venturing into the doctrine of Christ. So when you study the doctrine of Christ, what are you studying? When you study the doctrine of salvation, for example, you're studying soteriology. When you're studying the doctrine of Christ, what are you studying? Christology, right? Christology, the study of Christ. And um, today, what I want to look at is the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ, okay? That is really where the study of Christology has to begin, is to begin with Christ, uh, the God-man, but then to uh, substantiate the claim that Christ is a man, that he came into the world and um, that he took on flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, uh, you know, Christology is very important for several reasons. It affects so much of our lives to know who Christ is and what he did. When theologians talk about Christ and they talk about Christology, they love to refer to the study of Christology in two ways. That is to speak of the person, and what's the other one? And the work of Christ. So the person and work of Christ, because that encompasses the whole Christ, right? We are interested in asking the question, who is Christ and what did he do, right? That is really what's at the very heart of Christology. Christology is one of my favorite doctrines, you know, in the Christian faith. I just remember being a young believer and uh, getting to know uh, the Lord. And um, when I was saved, I was working at a factory with hundreds of people, big, massive office furniture factory. And um, before I was a Christian, I was actually um, uh, friends with a lot of people. I was still friends after, don't get me wrong, I didn't become mean or something, but 
Uh, I, but, but, but you see, I used to identify with these folks prior to Christ, partying and, and doing the types of things that unregenerate people do. And then when I became a Christian, they wondered, hey, what happened to you? Right? What happened to you? And so uh, a lot of the folks that I worked with, they were, I, I kind of found this out after I got saved, but they were people from all, all different walks of life. Um, I even worked with a Satanist. Uh, I worked with Jehovah Witness gentlemen. I worked with a, uh, a Oneness Pentecostal pastor. I worked with Mormons. And so right away, my Christian faith became to be challenged. And one of the things that it was challenged, the very heart of what it was challenged with, was, was Christology. Who is Christ? Because I had my Mormon friend over here telling me, well, Christ is just one of many gods. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be a god one day myself and then have my own planet and populate my own earths and, and, and things like that. And then I had the Jehovah Witness telling me, no, Christ is not God. And as a matter of fact, he is just kind of a demigod figure. He's kind of like an angel. He's kind of like a glorified angel. Uh, so he is a creature, ultimately. And so very quickly, I... I started realizing people believe different things about Christ. And so the, the doctrine of Christology is all important, all important. Okay, I don't tr just to let you all know, a little disclaimer here, I don't trust this board at all, okay? It may very well try to take my life before this is all done. Um, but it's important to know Christology because it's important to know orthodoxy, right? It's important to know... Um, Christ himself uh, in an intimate fashion, in a spiritual fashion, for our own lives, for the purpose of worship, right? Um, I love what Jesus told the woman at the well. We know what we worship, <laughs> right? Right. Salvation is of the Jews. She, we know what we're worshiping. You don't know what you're worshiping, you know, which is very politically incorrect to say the least. But what Jesus was saying is, is we know the truth. We know the living God. Um, and it's also important for knowing Scripture in general. Um, just a word on doctrine, right? Um, all, all doctrine works together. All doctrine works together. Um, systematic theologians have tried to organize the great doctrines of the faith in a very logical way because they assume the unity of the Bible. They assume that these doctrines go together, they're interlocked, interlinked, they're interrelated, and uh, that's what you see with the doctrine of Christology, is that your Christology is going to inform other doctrines, like what, for example? What can Christology inform? Soteriology. In what way, John? Uh, Not to put you on the spot, but... Well, who, who Christ is and what Christ has done is directly linked to the doctrine of salvation or soteriology. I mean, if he isn't who he says he is and he hasn't done what he says he's done, then soteriology falls apart. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, depending on what you're saying Christ has actually done, let's say on the cross, right, will depend what you believe about salvation, the nature of salvation. Is salvation by grace? Is salvation based on the merits of Christ alone? Or is it based on something I do? Right? Christology affects that. Um... Another reason why studying Christology is so, so important is because we have to understand what is orthodox. What is orthodox? Which means what is historic, uh, accepted, received, biblical doctrine, and what is not, right? Uh, what is orthodox or what is 
Uh, if it's not orthodox, it's going to be heterodox. Okay, and hetero means other. It's going to be other than orthodox. It's going to be hetero. That's a Greek word that means other. So basically, if we don't get familiar with the truth, you know, kind of like a banker, you've heard that analogy of a banker. They handle real money all day long, right? And their hands are very familiar with what it feels like. The minute they come across a, uh, uh, a um, help me. Yeah, you guys are ready. Okay. That's when I thought you weren't listening. All right. As soon as they come across a counterfeit, boom, they're like, ah, that's not real. Right. So as soon as you get a knock at the, yeah, this is Jehovah Witnesses. Ah, <laughs> that's not real. You know, it's maybe real, but it's not true. It's not true. And um, maybe a word on a word on um, the importance of orthodoxy in the context of church history, or or, or maybe um, uh, historical theology. Historical theology um, is different than systematic theology. Historical theology is asking the question: What has the Christian Church believed over the centuries, and how did that thought develop? Right. So how did we get to the Council of Nicaea? How did we get to Chalcedon? How did we get to the Reformation? How did we get here? Um, you know, early on, um, Christology was at the very heart of Christian controversy. Very, very early on. Very early on. And it didn't begin, most of the time, it did not begin with an outright denial that Jesus A, existed, or a denial that Jesus B was who he claimed to be, namely, fully God, fully man. It usually began with a subtle, a subtle undermining of orthodox teaching. So like, for example, early on you had even Tertullian. Tertullian is, uh, we're talking here, uh, uh, what, second uh, century AD? He began to kind of sow the seeds of what's known as subordinationism which speaks of the fact that Jesus is subordinate to the Father, and they spoke of the fact that uh, Tertullian um, even saw that the, the Son was subordinate to the Father, not just in a functional way, not just by virtue of what he did versus what the Father did or, or, or the works of Christ on earth versus the, you know, the glorified position that God had in heaven or something like that, or dealing with roles. But he began to talk about even ontologically, which means God in his very being, his very essence, that Christ was somehow inferior to the Father. Well, <clears throat> I think he backtracked after a while on statements like that, and eventually they were picked up by another gentleman by the name of Origen, who had no problem talking about Jesus being ontologically inferior to the Father or subordinate to the Father. That is a problem because the Bible teaches that Jesus is uh, just as God as the Father, right? He is just as divine as the Father. And so what I'm trying to show you is that, you know, heresy creeps in until finally, you know, you, you, you uh, give birth to the, whole, to the whole thing type of thing. And, um, and so many people have erred, and of course, undermining the, undermining the equality of the Father and the Son eventually led to the greatest Christological heresy of the first four centuries of the Christian church. Does anybody know what that is? 
Arianism. Sorry, all the isms and schisms. Um, who said that, Jonathan? So what is Arianism? That's right. It is the denial of the deity of Christ. It is saying that Jesus is not divine, right? That he is a he is a creature. He is a created thing, um, and uh, very 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 uh, radical historical. If you haven't studied church history, um, if you have not read one book on church history from cover to cover, you need to as a Christian. John Piper once said, how are you going to praise God for all that he did in the last 2,000 years? That's presupposing that he's going to return, you know, in our time or something like that. But, but you get the point. You know, if you don't know what he did throughout the history of the church, if you don't know anything about the history and the development of missions, how are you going to praise him for all the glorious things that he did in our human history? Right? So it's very good for Christians. If you have not, pick up the book um, by Bruce Shelley entitled uh, Church History in Plain Language, which is one volume. It's about five, 600 pages, something like that. It's a small book. <laughs> it really is for a church history book, okay? Uh, it is meaningful. It is clear. Um, that's good. And then maybe you can go from there to somebody like a Justo Gonzalez or something like that. But, but it's important because we know, we know from the history of Arianism that Arianism became so pervasive in the Roman Empire, okay, by the fourth century, that it became the dominant position in the Roman Empire among professing Christians that Arius was right. And uh, of course, Arius was ultimately refuted by another A man. Uh, Athenae. That's an I. Athanasius. Athanasius. Athanasius, arch, uh, the, um, uh, the Bishop of Hippo, was, which is up in um, North Africa. Oh, no, no. He was a Bishop of Alexandria. Alexandria, North Africa. That's right. And he debated Arius at the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea, in 325. And what is my pet peeve about the Council of Nicaea? Chris, you know. Yeah. I thought this is when the canon got <laughs> Right? I just had a college student tell me this this week. Oh, the Council of Nicaea, that's where they put the Bible together. That's where Constantine decided what books go in the Bible and which ones don't. Ah, too much A&E. <laughs> too much History Channel, right? Oh, yeah. Or too many skeptic websites that they've been looking at. No, and they say that with such passion, you know, like they know what they're talking about. But no, the Council of Nicaea actually had nothing to do with the canon of Scripture. It had everything to do with Christology. Christology. Because what was happening is that the controversy was upsetting entire congregations. It was like a wildfire spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And finally, Constantine stepped in and said, okay, we're going to call for a council, and we're going to invite prominent scholars to this council, and we are going to have us a little debate and we're going to hear from Arius, and we're going to hear from Athanasius. And Athanasius soundly refuted Arius's heresies, and he was declared to be a heretic as a consequence of that. Now let me just, um, especially if you're taking notes, let me tell you how important knowing your Christology is, okay? 
um, knowing your Christology is. Um, maybe I'll leave that up, 325, so it just gets etched in your mind, okay, what's going on here. Uh, Nicaea in 325, and this Christological heresies are going on. This is all introduction, by the way. Several weeks on Christology, okay, don't panic. Like, when are we going to get to the humanity of Christ? We'll get there. But this is important because I want to just show you how important it is to know Christology. It can boil down to the difference of one, not one word, one letter can make the difference whether you are a Christian or whether you are a Jehovah Witness, whether you are of Athanasius or whether you are of Arius, whether you're in the Orthodox, Orthodox understanding of Jesus and who he is or heterodox false understanding of who Jesus is. And the terms that I am thinking about is two Greek words. Homoousius. Uh, homoousius. Or homo homoi. There's an... Okay. There's your letter. One letter. One letter decided the fate of thousands. Arius said, Jesus has a substance or a nature, homoiousius, like the Father, similar to the Father. Athanasius said, no, he has a nature homo, homoousius, not homoiousius, homoousius. He has the same nature as the Father. Not similar, same. You see that? And uh, what you decide, same, similar. What you decide about that will determine whether you go to heaven or hell. That, that's exactly what happened in church history. If you were of the persuasion that this one letter is true, your eternal destiny is on the line. <laughs> this is how important truth is. And let's be honest, we live in a culture because of the, because of the effects of postmodernism that doesn't want to, they don't want to think about truth being this exclusive, right? Being this precise, you're going overboard. Look, look, Glenn Beck's a good guy. You know, Glenn, Glenn Beck is a good Mormon, and he's as much of a Christian as you are. What's the difference? It's a slight difference. <laughs> Glenn Beck believes that Jesus is just one of many gods, right? And that I will become a god one day, right? Just this little, you know, what's the difference? Oh, just a little bit. Just a few million gods, right? <clears throat> well, as long as he's a good person, doesn't hurt anybody. And so what we're not saying is that you know, uh, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, you know, oneness people, that they're the crummiest people on earth. We're not, ta we're not talking about that. We're saying they have made a grave Christological error and it will cost them their life. That's what, that's what we're saying. Any questions so far? Anything? Was this an argument of um, over 
actual written text or just saying, no, I believe he was similar and that's just the Greek word for that? Or this was the same, no, was, it, was it a text issue or was it an argument of ideas? That's a very, very good question. Um, I think two things are true there. Number one, yes, it is an argument of texts, ultimately. So they battled over different texts that seemed to stress the humanity of Christ versus the deity of Christ. But it was also an influence of Gnosticism. So Gnosticism was the background that influenced Arius. Gnostic, in a Gnostic Platonic back, background, we're talking about Plato here, going way back to the Greek philosophers now, right? They eventually gave birth to a heresy known as Gnosticism, Gnosticism, which above all denied the ability for the immaterial and the material universe to coincide. So that um, uh, the greatest state of existence is a non-corporeal state, non-bodily state. And so Jesus could not have come in an actual physical body. You know what I'm saying? So he's similar. That's right. So he began, they began to undermine the teaching of Scripture with philosophy. And that kind of was the, the, the historical backdrop behind that, but also the text of Scripture, which are the most important things. Right? It was a battle over the text of Scripture. Um, over the statements that Jesus was making uh, about his own lordship, his own deity, things like that. And um, where do we find like common representatives today of Arianism? Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses is the, is the, is the, is the, not, not Mormons, Jehovah Witness. Mormons are a bit different, but Jehovah's Witnesses specifically deny that Jesus is divine and they assert that Jesus is a uh, like an angelic being like a, he's he's better than angels but yet he's lower than God so some have accused them of being believing in some sort of demigod right a lower type of God which is of course absurd for many many reasons but um, what's that well Mormons don't deny the deity of Christ they don't deny the deity of Christ they just they're polytheistic they believe in many many more deities along the lines of that. And they deny the biblical teaching of the Trinity, too, as historically understood. Yeah? So the Mormon, Mormons, they are into the similar aspect of things. They're into the what now? They believe in the similar things. Is that what yeah, it's a different controversy altogether. It's not like Arianism, okay? But um, they definitely do not teach the orthodox position of, you know, of Christology. Uh, Mormonism is actually atheism. Uh, Mormonism is actually atheism. Philosophically, it is atheism. How? No. There is no a god. There is no god. There is no alpha god. There is no. There is no almighty god. Right. So that is the problem with polytheism. The minute that you say there are billions of gods, then there's no such thing as God, because God is the supreme almighty being over all things. But you can't have two supreme almighty beings over all things, or neither one is supreme, right? So anyway, let's um, let's uh, let's look to um, let's look at a couple of things here. Uh, turn with me in your Bible, for example, to Luke chapter one. Okay, Luke chapter one, verse thirty-five. That was just kind of a historical background. We'll do more of that. But that's just kind of for starters. That's for free. Now we'll just now we're gonna get into 
the text, uh, beginning with the humanity of Christ, we have to begin, as I said earlier, um, with the virgin birth. <clears throat> There is no question about it. The Bible teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. The only people who ended up denying that in church history were uh, the liberals, uh, especially the higher, uh, the, 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 the German higher criticism liberals, the, 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 the Rudolf Bultmanns of the world, the Albert Schleitzers of the world. They ended up denying the possibility of miracles and therefore denying the possibility of a virgin birth. And what do you think influenced these liberal Germans to believe that miracles were not possible? What do you mean? What do you think led these Germans to believe that miracles were not possible? Why? Any, any background, any reason that led to that? Did it begin by just waking up and saying, you know what? Miracles aren't possible. <laughs> Nothing begins that way, folks. <laughs> Right? Everything is a consequence of ideas. So I would say the evolutionary backdrop gave birth to modernism, which gave birth to anti-supernaturalism, which gave birth to the denial of miracles. Right? Rudolf Boltmann was committed to a naturalistic world in which miracles are not possible. And therefore, even the resurrection of Jesus wasn't possible. It's a metaphor. That's all it is. How trendy is that word right now, right? Oh, this is a metaphor for my life. <laughs> metaphor is like so trendy, it's very dangerous. So we gotta keep our eye on the ball on what's going on here today. But um, beginning with this verse, beautiful verse, uh, verse 35, it says, <clears throat> the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is the angel talking to Mary. And for that reason, it's a very critical phrase there, for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The Son of God. Um, what are some things that are embedded in the virgin birth of Christ? Why is it important we learn several important things with the virgin birth. Number one, we have the theology of the seed. The seed. The virgin birth is not just an interesting way that God decided to do this. <laughs> right? He didn't do it for the sake of our Christmas postcards. I mean, that's not why he did it. <laughs> okay. He did it as a fulfillment of the prophetic background of the Messiah which goes back to seed theology, right? Turn to Genesis chapter 3, please. Genesis chapter 3. Um, here we get this wonderful promise in the midst of a very bleak and dark situation. <clears throat> the context is... The context is the fall, yes, but even more so, the context is God's judgment for the fall. So this is God dealing out judgment after the fall, right? And he begins by 
he begins by cursing the snake, right? Cursed are you more than all cattle, more than all beasts of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15, right in the smack dab in the middle, because this verse uh, seven, 16 begins to give a curse to the woman and then finally a curse to the man. But in verse 15, we have this glorious glimmering promise that emerges in the context of a very black, bleak situation. Namely, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. I can tell you that all of Scripture is controlled by that verse. All of Scripture runs like a plumb line off of that verse. What follows is the seed of the woman and the genealogy of Cain and Abel leading all the way up to the Tower of Babel, leading all the way up to the patriarch Abraham. And then the seed takes on a different connotation. And then we see a clear view of what's going on with the seed. It will be a seed that will not only crush the head of the serpent, but it will be the seed that will also bless all of humanity. Right? Genesis, is it Genesis 17? In you, in you, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What is going on today on planet earth? What's going on right now on planet earth is that all of the nations are streaming into Christ. That's what's going on. So God is like, God is like constructing a whole new human race in Christ. Amazing. Every tribe, tongue, nation, people, right? Um, I mean, I haven't done a whole lot of traveling, but I've traveled a few places, and I remember being in an African hut <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere, having perfect fellowship with a couple of brothers in Christ. We are bound by the Spirit of God. Okay? Beautiful. What a, what a beautiful evidence of that that you can take an American guy like me, pick me up, put me on the other side of the globe, and I can have perfect unity, perfect fellowship, wonderful communion with this brother, right? Who comes from a totally different background, totally different culture. Believe me, it's a different culture. <laughs> over there, the guys, they hold their pinkies, and that's the friendship. That's kind of like shaking hands over there. So me and K-Dub, you know, we're really tight. You know, we hold pinkies. I said, that ain't happening, bro. <laughs> don't expect me to be walking down the hallway holding, you know, pinkies with K-Dub. I still love you. I mean, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but you can see how God is collectively bringing together in Christ all these people, all this diff mass of humanity in Christ. And it's all a fulfillment of the seed. And so by the time we get to the incarnation, what we're seeing in the virgin birth is the presence, the announcement, and the arrival of the seed. That's what we're seeing there, right? What's another thing that is important about the virgin birth? The virgin birth also secures another very, very important term that you should all know and that you should all understand, at least as much as you can. And that is... The hypostatic, oh, the hypostatic union. Right? 
Didn't somebody, isn't that a rap song? Is it? <laughs> Who, who's it? Is that yours? Shaolin. Oh. Okay. The hypostatic union. So, hypostatic comes from the Greek word upo stasis. That's right. Hupostasis. So, the Greek would be something like that. Hupostasis. And what that means is uh, dual, so you have kind of a, a word there that speaks of two, and then um, stasis would refer to something along the lines of nature. So you have two natures. So the hypostatic union speaks of the bringing together of two natures in Christ. So I'm going to quiz you here as to your orthodoxy, okay? So, in the hypostatic union of Christ, did the two natures come together to form an, a third nature? No. 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 no, right? Right? Because that would be like nature plus nature equals... three natures, and that's what Jesus is. No, that's not what happened, right? So, <clears throat> so did it, did it form uh, even one new nature? Maybe that's not a perfect representation, right? So did these two become just one? No. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. yeah, it did? Well, no, it didn't. That's the whole point, is that the, 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 in the doctrine of the hypostatic union of Christ, what we're saying is that in the person of Christ exists two natures simultaneously. These two natures, divine and human, do not sort of become one new type of nature. You see what I'm saying? He retains both natures. Jesus is fully God fully man at the same time. That's, that's what happened in the hypostatic union of Christ. And that is what is being pointed out to us in the virgin birth. It is giving birth. Look at the text again if you're back there in Luke, Luke chapter 1. Okay? Because there you have this assertion. Right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child. So there we are told that what she is getting ready to give birth to is a child, right? A human child through natural birth. But he will be the Son of God. So there you have the two natures right there. He is a human child, but he is also the Son of God. He's Mary's child, and he's God's child. <laughs> right? Yes, sir. I don't know. I'm getting confused now. Okay. Because um, he was born sinless. Correct. Okay. He was not, not part of the fallen man. Correct? He, Correct. He was, he was perfect. He, That's right. capable of falling into the flesh of nature, where we're at. Right. So, yeah, yeah, and actually that's my third point, Mike. My third point is not only do we see 
the pro you know the prophecy of the seed coming true not only do we have the hypostatic union but we also learn something very important with the virgin birth and that is dealing with the sinless nature of Christ the sinless nature of Christ look at the text again this is very interesting there's some grammatical issues that are going on here that are very important for our learning um, it says here in the NASB who has an ESV we'll forgive you for that but go ahead can you read can you read your ESV to us that verse verse 36 35 and the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That is not as accurate as what the Greek text says. And uh, Wayne Grudem actually does a very good job of pointing this out um, because, he, um, <clears throat> because he's stressing the fact that, the ch that what is being born is holy see what i'm saying so the nasb for that reason the holy child so holiness is an attribute of the child that will be born so it just stresses a little bit more the sinless nature of christ how does christ come into the world and remain sinless after all he was born of mary so some people have made a false theological conclusion thinking that the sin nature is passed down through the father and therefore because jesus didn't have an earthly father i.e joseph he didn't inherit the sin nature that's 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 not a good position to hold rather we rather give the credit of the sinlessness of jesus to the power of the holy spirit after all that is the causal nature of the text look at what it says again the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high god will overshadow you that's an interesting phrase. He will overshadow you. And so what theologians have pointed out is that that overshadowing includes the idea of superintending. He will protect that which is in her womb. He will oversee it. He will guide it. He guides the process. He ordains the process. He, he supervises the process, making sure that Jesus never, ever inherits the sin nature and so it is somewhat of a mystery but we are also told just speaking about his sinlessness that he is a holy child he that which is begotten is holy that is really what the text is trying to stress so you have the sinlessness of the son what are some passages in scripture that say that jesus is sinless this is very important if somebody came up to you a Muslim, for example, or you know, uh, anybody else uh, came up to you and asked you, where does the Bible teach that Jesus is sinless? Despite, you know, apart from this verse. <laughs> Any other verses that you can think of that speak to the sinless nature of Christ? What's that? 1 Peter 2.22. Can you read that for us? Yeah, it says he opened his mouth and no deceit was found in it. No deceit was found in it. Is that quoting something? Is that verse quoting something? You can find that if, that if that verse is referring to anything else. Any other verse? Yes, ma'am. What is it? Yeah, what does that say, Jaylene? Let me put it in NASB. 
Okay. Good for you. You get three points for that. Thank you. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of He made him who knew no sin. That's a very powerful verse on the sinlessness of Christ. Jesus Christ is not a sinner, right? He didn't even become a sinner on the cross. Very careful now, right? When Jesus took the sin upon himself, it doesn't mean that he was somehow infused with sin. That's not what the doctrine of imputation is talking about. It is a forensic declaration, meaning legal, legal matter. The Father, the Father reckoned him a sinner. Just like a judge would reckon somebody to be guilty, right? When the judge says, guilty, did the judge make the individual more sinful, <laughs> right? Did he infuse him with sin? Of course not. It's a, de a legal declaration. Any other verses on the sinlessness of Christ? That first Peter one. And you're right, it, it's quoting, um, it is quoting, can I read the whole thing real quick? What is it quoting? Um, well, I'll just read it. For, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in the steps who committed no sin nor was any deceit done in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but in trusting himself to him who judges righteously. And that was quoting... Um, I don't know. I'm going to turn there. Something in the OT. <laughs> Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 53. Oh, okay. It's a in verse 11, it says, um, yeah, verse 9, I'm sorry. He, verse 11 is another one. He, his grave was assigned with the wicked and yet was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And then verse 11 gives him the description calling him the righteous one. He is the righteous one. Not only is he not sinful, but he is positively also the righteous one. The prototypical righteous man. Right? Hebrews 7.26 Yeah. For he is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's right. That's right. Separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. How about this one? I'll give you, I'll give you guys one. 1 John 3, 5. You know that Jesus, he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. So why all of this? Why all of this sinlessness of Christ? Because... As we are told in other places, it had to be, as Peter points out in 1 Peter chapter 1, it had to be a spotless, blemishless lamb to die for us. What does John the Baptist say in John 1 when he sees Jesus coming? What does he call him? Yeah, behold the lamb of God, which takes away the sin, not the sins. Careful how many times you hear that quoted wrong, right? The sin of the world. Um, I don't want to chase that rabbit down, but um, <laughs> it's tempting. 
John chapter 1, verse 29, that's where that comes from. But um, you see this. Also, let me give you another one. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once and for all. The just for the unjust. Now, there's no question who the unjust are. Sinners, <laughs> right? So the non-sinner for the sinners. That's, what it's, that's what's being said here. And so, um, how about some other aspects of the humanity of Christ then. Uh, I think this is also very important. The, the sinlessness of Christ, right? Um, was Jesus sinless because Mary was sinless? Right? That is historically known as the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. What does the Immaculate Conception mean? Why? What does the Immaculate Conception refer to? Leave it to Pastor Chris to tell us that's right. It's not referring to Christ's birth being sinless. It's actually referring to Mary's birth being sinless. That she was born without sin, and therefore, <laughs> this is very blasphemous here. Get ready for this, right? And therefore, she has the ability to give birth to a sinless child. There's another very pernicious uh, heresy in that. If Mary is born sinless, that means the curse of sin stops with not Jesus, with Mary. So that's what Roman Catholicism has taught. Is that what it means by co Co-redemptress. Co-redemptress, yes. Yeah, that's right. That's part of it, at least. Wow. No, no, no. Uh, just, to give you some, just to give you some ammo on that, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 47. Um, people who do not have sin do not need what? That's right. They don't need a Savior, and they don't need salvation. They're sinless. What are they being saved from? So verse 47, Mary prays, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, the one who saves me from my sin. Right? If you would have went up to Mary and told her you are sinless and therefore you're going to give birth to a sinless child, she would have ripped her, she would have tore her clothes. She would have, she would have poured sackcloth and ashes upon herself. What was that reference? Luke 1.47. The fact that Jesus was also, we're going to get into a little bit more of this next time. But, um, so we have these important details. The fact that he was sinless. Um, oh boy. One last thing. Dealing with the humanity of Christ and the virgin birth. The virgin birth begins what we can call the weakness, weak and limited. So the weakness and limitations of Jesus Christ, that is to say that Jesus, the man, as a man, he experienced the full range of human weakness and limitations, right, as a man. Um, turn to Philippians chapter 2, please. This is a crucial text for this. We'll talk a little bit more about this next time because we are out of time, but just maybe we can end with this. Because I want you to be encouraged as you leave here today. 
Hopefully I didn't just confuse you to death the whole time. But I want you to be encouraged that, as the book of Hebrews says, we have a sympathetic high priest. Why can he sympathize with us? Because he came into our experience. I don't care where you come from, your background, your psychological condition, your environment, your upbringing, how dysfunctional your family was, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. So the minute you are tempted to despair, oh, woe is me and nobody knows, Jesus knows. And he understands fully. Are you sick? Mm -hmm. Jesus was sick, tired, mm -hmm. right? He was weak, right? Have you been hurt before by people? Have you been betrayed? <gasps> Jesus was betrayed with a kiss, right? So Jesus can fully understand our weaknesses because he was a man, 100% man. Remember, we're not saying 50% man, 50% God. No, 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 no. 100% man, 100% God. Together coinciding in the person of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, we'll close with this. Although he, was exist although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, because he already had that. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He wasn't made a, a sinful man. He was made in the likeness of men which means he, everything short of sin, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. That is, that is the, uh, the strongest example of the weakness and the limitations of Jesus Christ. As a man, Jesus hungered. He said on the cross, I thirst. When he went to the woman at the well, he was tired from walking, <laughs> right? He slept because he got tired. <laughs> so fully God, fully man. All right, let's pray before I get in any more trouble. It's already late. Chris, you want to pray for us?